here's how we're going to begin. We're going to begin the way uh, we always begin. Uh, before we jump into the passage this morning, uh, I would love to talk to our young ones here and young ones tell you what the passage is going to be about and what the sermon is going to be about. So with that, here's what we're going to be talking about today. Uh, we're going to see Paul the Apostle. Remember, we're in the book of Romans. So we're going to see Paul the Apostle uh, talk about uh, just some, uh, some hard stuff in the world uh, and stuff that we don't really fully understand, but we know it's real. We know it's true. So uh, y'all know this, kids. Y'all know there's all kinds of stuff in the world uh, like everyday stuff that, that's real, but you don't know exactly how it works. So how about this? Water. Like, water's pretty simple, right? Actually, it's maybe the most complicated chemical that we know of. Uh, how about this? What is frozen water, kids? Frozen water is ice. Good. Okay. And ice is cold, and it's watery. It's, like, kind of slippery. Like, what can you do, what can you, if you put on some skates, you can go out on an ice, ice, and you, okay, kids, why is ice slippery? You know what? No one knows. Seriously, no one knows why ice is slippery. But no, 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 even, even, even like frozen ice, I know, because it's watery, but even frozen ice uh, is slippery. No one, your scientists don't know. You know what else your scientists don't know? why hot water freezes faster than cold water, but it does. How about this? What does water taste like? Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, what is water? Like, it tastes like what? Nothing. Water. Yeah, like water. That doesn't explain what it tastes works. <laughs> Richard, how does a bicycle work? You, you pedal the bicycle and it goes. That is all we know. I'm not kidding. They actually really cannot explain, scientists cannot explain how a bike stays stable. How you can be like this on a bike. And like, they don't get the physics of it. Not kidding. I'm not making this up. Okay. How about this? Gravity. How does gravity work, kids? No one has any idea. No idea. How does gra How about this? Dreams. Do you all know why you dream? Your brain is still working whenever you go to bed. This is true, and that's really, really important because you keep breathing and you keep it, yes. But we actually have no idea why we dream and why we dream the stuff that we dream. I know you all have had crazy dreams. Dreams, like simple, like, yeah, I know dreams are real. Yeah, we know they're real. We have no idea how they work. How about this? Laughing. How does laughing work? You just, you just, do, you do, you just do it. And you don't know when you're going to do it, how you're going to do it. How about this? Like, think about tickling. Like, tickling actually hurts. But you laugh when someone does it. Like, we don't get it. Yawning. Why do we yawn? Well, we're tired. Yeah, but, we, that, but the actual thing of like, yawn, we don't know why. When you're tired, your body does this. And if I kept doing that, you know what you would start doing? Crazy. Okay, hey, last thing. Y'all, this thing, you're going to go look this up later today with your parents. It's called somatics. Soma I just learned this the other day. A friend showed me this. You, they, you can make sound visible. 
And not like, I mean like, you can see sound. And what I, this is so hard to explain. I don't even know how to explain it. No one knows really how to explain it because we don't know how this works. But if you do, if you like play some music over like some water or some sand, you can see diamond shapes. If you do this sound versus like this sound, like a low sound or a high sound, like it will take specific geometry. And I know you kids are like, who's Da Vinci? He's really old. A really smart scientist, Galileo, another really old smart scientist. They've known about this stuff, they don't know how it works. But they're looking into it more and more because they think like this is crazy. Like, go look up somatics at the end of mind blowing. Okay, this morning we're going to read a passage about how God runs the world. And, and we know that God runs the world because the Bible tells us that God runs the world, kids. Uh, but we don't, we, we don't know how it all works. We don't know how God does it all. Because think about this, like, you know, you, you say there's a God. He's all-powerful. He's good. And then there's all this bad stuff in the world. There's all this evil and suffering. How does that work, God? And, and, and that's a good question. That's a problem. Here's the bigger problem with that problem. Kids, you know this. We talk about this. You're part of the problem. And so am I. We are part of the problem of evil and suffering in the world. And what God could do is he could come in judgment and wipe us all out because that's what we really deserve. The good news is God has a better plan, that God sends his son to come and he takes judgment for us. He lives the way we should live. He dies for our sins on the cross and he overcomes all of that evil in us. It's this thing of just because we can't understand how God works in all things, we can know even the bad stuff in your life. He is working in all things, all according to his plan, and it's all going to be really good. Like if you just think about Jesus on the cross, young ones, it looks like he's losing on the cross. It looks like he lost on the cross. And even in that moment, he is, God is completely in charge. And it's the greatest good ever because through his suffering and through his death, he really saves us from our suffering and from our death. This is what Paul is going to try and get to us uh, uh, this morning. We're in Romans chapter 9, and uh, we're going to take a bulk of this chapter here this morning. And, and just to get us all on the same page, there is this very distinct shift from what Paul was talking about in all these chapters in Romans leading up to chapter 9. Uh, at, you know, after this glorious exposition you know, uh, of the gospel of salvation and he gets to chapter 9, and Paul starts to talk about his anguish over Israel, the nation of Israel, his people Israel. Because here's the problem. The question is, like, what about Israel? All the assurances of salvation that Paul has been so enthusiastically talking about, all the good promises of, et of eternal life, it's all been accomplished. All you have to do is believe in Jesus, and you've got it all. Okay, there is this thing, there's this objection of, okay, all that can be brushed away with this one objection. Well, what about Israel? Because Israel used to be God's favored people. So, did God fail in his promises to Israel? And if he did, what does that mean for the rest of us? And that is such a big question that Paul spends three chapters, chapters 9, 10, and 11, answering that question. Uh, so, which means... We're, we're just getting started here. We're not going to answer all of the very good questions this morning, but we're going to get to some, uh, and we're going to get to more in the weeks to come. Uh, with that, please stand for the reading of God's Word. Romans chapter 9, 
Beginning in verse 6, Paul says, knowing the objection, he says, but it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it's not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it, then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I've raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. And you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called, not from the Jews only, but <clears throat> also from the Gentiles, as indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people, and her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very same place where it said to them, you're not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And Isaiah, as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah, the word of the Lord. Please be seated. <clears throat> so the big question that Paul is answering is, did God fail Israel? The key to Paul's answer, all the way from Romans 9, 10, and 11, the key is 9, verse 6, it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. That is, there are two Israels. Paul says there is Israel of the flesh and Israel of the promise. Just because you're an Israelite does not mean you really belong to God. In the Old Testament, in Genesis, here's Paul saying, let me give you an example. In the Old Testament, in Genesis, God comes to Abraham and he promises that his blessing of salvation to the world will come through Abraham and his descendants. And he'll go out to the nations of the world. But, not everybody is, quote, a child of Abraham just because you're his offspring. He says, for example, historical example, Abraham had two sons, Isaac and Ishmael. Both are Abraham's children, but only one received the promise of salvation. 
Only Isaac was a child of the promise. Only Isaac gets eternal blessing of salvation. And, and, and there's this thing of Ishmael was born naturally. If you remember that history, Ishmael was born naturally. Isaac was born supernaturally through the intervention of God. This miracle that points to this reality that, okay, so just like that, those who are just born in the flesh as Israelites, that doesn't automatically make you an heir of eternal life. About God's promises of salvation, those are the children of God. Those are the ones that belong to God. Another historical example. Look at the very next generation. Uh, this is, Paul says, look, okay, look at those next set of kids. Look at Isaac's kids. Now, Isaac, a child of the promise, he has two kids. He had Esau and Jacob, and only Jacob was a child of the promise. And only Jacob was saved. Paul says Israel is like that. The nation of Israel is like that. There's Israel according to the flesh, like Esau. And then here's the so what. He's going to unpack back to that and unpack more about the nation of Israel. But here's his big so what right here is verse 13, Old Testament. That's a quote from the prophet Malachi who is quoting God. This Esau I hated, it means God did not save Esau. But God did set his love and his salvation on Jacob, which raises the question, why? And here's what we know from this. It's not an ethnic thing. It's not a race thing. Both Jacob and Esau were twins. They're conceived at the same time. They're born at the same time. And yet only one received the promise of salvation and the other did not. It's also not a morality thing. Paul says, verse 11, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, one was elected before either of them had a chance to be more moral than the other one. And if you know your Genesis history, if you know the, the history of this family, Jacob, who was a child of the promise, he was a deceiver. He's a liar. He's not any better than Esau. Neither was better than the other, yet one was saved and the other one wasn't. So why Jacob and not Esau? Paul gives us an answer, but he does not give us the answer that you're expecting. Because what, you, what you're expecting Paul to say is, well, it's because of faith. Because Jacob believed the promises of salvation and Esau didn't. That's not what Paul says. The answer Paul gives here is God's election. That though they were not, this is quote, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. Paul is saying God's promises have not failed. And he's starting to answer that objection here by saying, not all Israel is really Israel. God, from before the foundations of the earth, chose whom he desires for salvation. And he does so not on the basis of anything in people, but for reasons in himself alone. The first objection that Paul addresses here, because he knows the objections to this, to this, this thing of election, God's election, he's heard them all. So the first objection Paul addresses is in verse 14. Wait a second. The, is there injustice on God's part? It's the objection, it's the common objection that, that, you know, is rising out of all people when they hear this, is that's not fair. Like God electing some of Israel and not others of Israel, 
And, and then on top of that, God electing Gentiles, some Gentiles who are not of Israel. Like that would be unjust of God. And Paul answers verse 15, he says, no, by no means is that unjust of God. And then to answer Israel, he quotes from Israel's Testament, the Old Testament, Exodus. He says, this is, he gives this quote in just context. This is when God appears to Moses and he says, go back to Egypt and tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And Moses says, okay, I'll, okay, fine, I'll go. But Israel's going to ask, like, who's sending, who sent me? So you've got to identify yourself. Like, who are you? Who do I say sent me? How do I identify you? And this is how the Lord identifies himself. This is what Paul says. He says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. I mean, that, that is what God reveals himself to Moses to reveal himself to Israel. He reveals himself by claiming his own free will. And here's the thing, when we come to when we come to this stuff about election, what we want to talk about, what we, what we want to debate, we want to debate about election, uh, we're concerned about human free will. No, wait, wait, what is a person free to do and to choose? So some will try to argue, okay, let, let's think about this. Why is a person, let's call them person X, why is person X elect? Well, because God because God saw that this person, person X, would choose to have faith given the circumstances that God's going to orchestrate for this person and, and the situation that God is going to put th this person in. God foresees, God, God knows, uh, uh, chooses, saw that this person would choose God, uh, so that's who's elect. And scholars who hold to this, then they admittedly claim it is up to us whether we are predestined in the world in which we find ourselves. They will say our election is conditioned on our choice. Our choice of God. That's not what Paul says here. That's not right according to God. When God reveals himself to Moses, God says, verse 16, it does not depend on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Everywhere, everywhere election appears in the Bible, it is never about human will. It is never about human free will or ability. It is always about God's free will. God in His free will choosing. It's about God's mercy. Verses 17 and 18, not only does God have the free will to save sinners even though they don't deserve it, that's mercy, God also has the free will to harden sinners because they do deserve it. That's justice. That's, that's what God does to Pharaoh, sending Moses to Pharaoh, sending these ten plagues on, on Pharaoh in Egypt. Now, I know we hear this. And we, you know, that question, that most basic question that we want to ask is, okay, mm, like, is this real? Is this really, really real? Like God elected some unto salvation, unconditioned anything, meaning his election was not determined by, it was not conditioned upon anything a person would do. Like it's God who chooses who is in, who is out. Is that a real thing? You hear that and you can, you can uh, immediately think, like, what, wait, that's real? That's not real? That, what? And, and then you get into this thing of like, almost like, what's real? 
Uh, have you all ever had those, those moments of like, wait, what is real? What is really real? Uh, you, uh, a bit of a mind conundrum. You start questioning reality. True story. I took a trip once with two friends, uh, and our trip began very, um, how do you say this word? Ominously. Ominously, uh, and we took uh, we took the last flight out of town that evening, and uh, and it got delayed because a group boarding the flight they got on the plane and they looked at us in our you know in the seats and they said you're in our seats and we said no we're in our seats and we all looked at our tickets and realized we're all in the same seats and it's like wait what that was the first moment of like wait what's real what is it wait what this can't be and then we realized they had printed boarding passes from the night earlier. Uh, we had digital passes. They were the latest, most up-to-date. But, so we were in the right seats. They were in the wrong seats. But it was almost this moment of like, wait, we're both right. That's weird. And, and yet, that can't be. Um, okay, so then, and, and actually, that's not what delayed the flight. What then delayed the flight is as soon as they passed us, one of them got sick on the plane. And we had to, we had to wait forever for someone to come and uh, clean that up. So we finally arrive at our destination, and we get to the rental car place, and, and we, we get in our car, our awesome Maserati. We're in our car, and uh, we're, we're leaving. You know, you stop at that booth to check out. And we go, and there's this woman there. She's, she's named Donna. And uh, she looks at us, she looks at her paper, she looks at her computer and says, sorry, this car does not exist. And, you know, we're sitting there like, steering wheel, air conditioner, radio, seats. What? Like, in the second moment of like, what's real? Uh, like, what's really real? And he's like, no, this car does not exist. I'm sorry, you're going to have to drive this car back that doesn't exist back to the parking lot. You're going to have to check in at the main desk again and get another car. This car is not real. We're like, uh, okay, but, you know, and then, and then it's like, uh, uh, entrance and exit, and Donnie looks and says, there are no spikes. We just drove over spikes, and there are no spikes. We go back to the main desk, and they're looking, and they're like, yeah, we don't know where you got this car. That car, it doesn't exist, and it's not in our inventory. I'm not joking. They gave us another car. We went back out, and the car was gone. That car's gone. We get into this new car. Oh, and the other thing they told us is like, well, this is what Donna told us. And they look and say, there is no Donna. <laughs> what, are talk- what are you talking about? There is no Donna. like, there's no Donna that works for, you know, our rental. And like, no, there's the, we'll, we'll go talk to Donna, like, on our way out again. So we get in this new car that does exist. We're going back out, uh, back out uh, in that parking booth. At that point, we just go. There's no Donna. And we ask, hey, where's Donna? And the person's like, there is no Donna. At that point, we just got out, you know, we left. But it's this thing of, like, what is, what is, like, what's happening? What's real? Uh, and, and you start questioning your own existence. I think election can do that kind of stuff to us of like, I can't get my head or like, is this real? Could this be real? If this is real, why is it real? And the answer is yes, it's real. It's really, really real. And the, the thing of could God have done this or could he have done that? Those kinds of questions that we start asking about it, like they don't help answer the question of whether or not election is actually real. Like, God could have, could God have, God could have saved everybody because he does have the power and the authority to do so. And God could have saved nobody because he is under no obligation to be gracious to sinners, to be gracious to rebels. But he chose not to save all, nor did he choose to save none. God for reasons in and of himself, chose to save some. And those he chose are his elect. That's reality. And from there, Paul anticipates another objection 
verse 19, if election is real, then why does God still find fault? Like, for who can resist His will? If salvation is about God choosing to be merciful to only some, then why are others who have no choice, why are they still held responsible for not being saved? What this is, is this is most basically a rejection of human responsibility. And Paul is about to, in the next chapter, in chapter 10, Paul is about to go into people's responsibility, human responsibility for their sin, for the rejection of God, but that is not where Paul starts to answer this objection. The way Paul begins to answer this objection is he challenges the arrogance of the question itself. Verse 20, Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? First, what, the, what that does not mean. That does not mean we don't get to ask God questions. That does not mean we don't get to ask questions. We love to ask questions you know, in this church. You know, like, that does not mean we don't wrestle with the hard stuff or we don't talk about the hard stuff and work through it graciously. That, that's not, the word Paul uses here, it doesn't, it's not question. It means contend. And what you're supposed to think of is you're supposed to think of Job. Old Testament Job. That's, that's the question he's, he's bringing up here. Job, in the Old Testament, Job asks over and over and over the reason for his suffering. And eventually, Job's questions, sincere questions, they turn into a demand. And, and Job starts to demand over and over and over that God show up and explain himself to Job. That God show up and explain to Job how God runs the world because it doesn't make sense to Job. And then God shows up at the end of the book. And, it, and he shows up in a hurricane. And instead, he, instead of answering Job's demand, he demands an answer from Job. Job, quote, Job, who are you to con- in God? Me. God demands uh, Job answer why he believes in God. God turns and says, no, 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 you're going to tell me why you believe in me. And God demands Job justify himself. It's this thing like, Job, you, you're talking as if you think you're above evil. You talk as if you could exalt yourself to the throne over creation. Okay, show me. You explain to me. You show me your ability to work all things according to the counsel of your will. You deal with the world's problems. You subdue all evil. Go. And Job repents. Uh, A a former RUF pastor named Les Newsom, he said this. He said that election has a way of centering you as a Christian because it raises one big, it really raises one big question. Does God exist for my pleasure or do I exist for his? And once you get an idea that, that, the, that idea that the universe is run in totality by God, things just look different. This is Paul's challenge to the arrogance of the question. Can, can the potter, can't the potter use the clay for his own purposes? Like Even when mankind fell into sin, God still owned them. It's God's world. It's God's creation. The visible and invisible all of it, and everything and everyone in it, it's God's. And the problem, the problem with our knowledge is we don't, 
we don't admit and we don't want to admit that there is an infinitely bigger gap between God's knowledge and our knowledge than there is between a three-year-old child and their parent. Isn't it a little strange that both non-Christians and Christians say they will only believe in a God who matches what they already think and believe? That that's, that, that that's the God of the universe? A, a God who has to match everything you want and everything you think, and that's the only way you'll believe in God? Paul says that God has a right over his creation to save who he wants and not save who he wants. And it does raise the genuine question. This is a genuine qu- question. Okay, why did God create people who in God's universe have no chance of going to heaven why just create them if they're if he's just going to send them to hell and the short answer is i don't know and 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 more importantly i have no idea who those people are or are not it might vary and and here's the good news neither neither do you none of us do And it might very well be God's eternal intentions to save the person you're speaking to at any given moment. Who's to say, God, not me, not you. God has not burdened you with that information. Don't burden yourself with it. In C.S. Lewis's uh, Chronicle of Narnia series, uh, the fifth book is is the, the overlooked book. Uh, because it's, it follows minor characters. It kind of backs up in the, in the timeline of the story. But y'all, it's like a spinoff. And if you love these Star Wars spinoffs or whatever, like this, like there's so, all these thing, anthologies are so popular. This is basically uh, the original anthology of uh, this Narnia series. So it needs to make a comeback. It's called The Horse and His Boy, and it's awesome. Uh, it's, it, it's about two talking horses and two children, uh, Shasta and Erebus. And, and they've escaped slavery in a very wicked nation, and they're headed north to Narnia for freedom. Okay, so after uh, many, many trials, hardships, near-death experiences, Shasta, the little boy, he's traveling in the middle of the night, he's in total darkness, he's hungry, he's tired, and he he just starts to cry, he just loses it, he just breaks down. He can't, like, crying because he starts freaking out, because he realizes in the middle of the pitch black, he's not alone. It says this, it was pitch dark, scale, he hears breathing, and Shasta got the impression that it was a very large creature. Shasta like, is, is mortified, scared to death. He's frozen <clears throat> in fear. And finally, he ekes out a little whisper that says, who are you? And this thing assures Shasta that he's not a ghost. And then he just says, tell me your sorrows. And Shasta is a little reassured by the breath. So he told him how he never really knew his, uh, his real father or mother. He'd been brought up sternly by the fishermen who abused him. And then he told the story of his escape and how they, uh, he and Erebus were chased by lions, forced to swim for their lives, all the dangers that happened in Tashban, uh, and about his night among the tombs and how the beasts howled at him out of the desert. And he told them about the heat and the thirst of their desert journey and how they were almost at their goal when another lion chased them and wounded Erebus. And also how very long it was since he had had anything to eat. And this very large voice says, I do not call you unfortunate. And then he says, whoa, don't you think it was bad luck to meet so many lions? 
And the boy says, there was only one lion. How do you know? I was the lion. And as Shasta gaped with open mouth and said nothing, the voice continued. I was the lion who forced you to join with Erebus. I was the cat who comforted you among the houses of the dead. I was the lion who drove the jackals from you as you slept. I was the lion who gave the horses the new strength of fear for the last mile that you should reach King Loon in time. And I was the lion, you do not remember, who pushed the boat in which you lay, a child near death, so that it came to the shore where a man sat, wakeful at midnight to receive you. He says, then it was you who winded, uh, wounded Erebus? It was I. But what for? Child, said the voice, I am telling you your story, not hers. I tell no one any story but his own. And he says, who are you? And he just says, myself. Which is this thing of like, you know, Jesus, I am statement. Because this is, this is Aslan, who is the Christ figure, the lion Christ figure of the Chronicles of Narnia. And this is true, like, this is God saying, I, I only tell you your story. I'm telling you your story. And you think about others, I'm not telling you their story. I tell no one any story but his own. After, Je like, after Jesus' resurrection, Jesus is telling Peter, you know, Jesus, Peter's betrayed Jesus, Jesus has been crucified, he's been resurrected, and now they're meeting again, and Jesus is leading Peter into repentance, and he tells Peter the hard life that he's now calling Peter to, and he even tells him about the death that Peter's going to die. And then Peter, being Peter, he turns and he looks at John and says, well, what about him? Like, what's going to happen to him? And Jesus looks at him and he says, what's that to you? You follow me. How does election work with human responsibility? Paul does not answer the question because Paul does not know. It, 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 from mankind's, we've got to, let's think about it from mankind, we'll end with this. Think about this from mankind's perspective in history. God, God made a well-meant offering of where did it all go wrong? It went all wrong in the garden at the fall. But right there, God made a well-meant offering of eternal glory to Adam and to all of those he represented in the garden. Uh, uh, an offering of eternal glory, glory. Obey and you will live. And Adam chose to rebel. And God, in his mercy, he came and instead of wiping us all out in judgment... He was merciful and promised a Savior who would come and save his people at the greatest cost to himself. And that does not make God unjust in the face of evil and sin. He doesn't just overlook it. It's Jesus, the promised Savior, who fulfills all justice by living as his people should live and by dying in their place the death that we deserve to die in order to pay the penalty for our sin. And it's because justice is upheld in the life and in the death of Jesus, that God can be merciful to his elect people. That is from our understanding, that's from our perspective, mankind's perspective in history. Now, from God's perspective in eternity, what we do know, because God has revealed this to us in his word, is that before creation and before the fall, God the Father made a covenant with God the Son. The Son would be born into creation and live and die for the sins of His elect, rebellious people. And, as, and the Father, what the, the Son does that, and the Father would reward the Son with those people. 
That's your reward. You will get these people and he will give the son an eternal kingdom of glory of a new heaven and a new earth where he would be king forever over his elect people. And, and what the scriptures reveal is, yes, God decreed everything that would happen in creation before he created it. And in eternity, beyond space and time, before creation, how we wrap our minds around this thing of like all his decrees are simultaneous in, in, in eternity, but this redemptive order, it has priority. It is, it is the priority of all the decrees because it is the ultimate purpose and end of God's creation. That the Son will have a kingdom and He will have His people. And, and we've got to say this, and yet, you know, if your brain is like, wait, what? I just, and, and yet, we've got to say this, detemporalizing, <laughs> detemporalizing God's decrees, they're just outside of space and time. Okay, detemporalizing them it does not solve the paradox. We have to admit that. Like That does not solve the paradox of, of God's divine sovereignty and human responsibility. That remains, that paradox, that mystery remains, and it's a reminder of that most basic religious theological distinction between God and creatures, between creatures and our Creator, our Father in Heaven, whose thoughts and whose ways are beyond our fathoming. And in the end, loved ones, that has to be enough. Either God is not God, and nothing means anything, and everything means nothing, or God is who He says He is. He is a helpful and loving Father who has my and your best interests at heart, even though He doesn't let us in on everything in His mind. Let's pray. Father, we, we come uh, here to worship uh, and to sit under your word, Lord, and, and we pray that that would be the posture of our hearts, that we wouldn't sit over your word as if we were to judge it, Lord, but to truly bring ourselves under it, to be exposed by it, Lord, and to see the glories of the gospel of grace and to believe. Father, we pray that again today you would grow us in grace and you would grow us in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior and bless us uh, to be humbled by the awesomeness of your mercy. We pray this in Christ's name and we pray it for his glory. Amen.